BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Steve. We've talked about so many great filmmakers on The Cinephiles, from the meticulous mastery of Stanley Kubrick to the wild genius of Orson Welles or the crowd-pleasing craftsmanship of Steven Spielberg, and of course, Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense. But there is no career in film that I've approached with more trepidation and awe than that of the great Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa can be epic or intimate. He can tell a story of elegant simplicity or almost overwhelming majesty. His touch can be light as a feather one moment and hit you like a hammer in the next. Few films have stunned me with their sheer visual power more than Ron. Few films have challenged me more than Rashomon or moved me like Ikiru. And no film has done all of that at once more powerfully than Seven Samurai. This is a career unlike any other. His films are incredibly influential with more remakes and reimaginings than any other filmmaker. And yet, as entertaining as some of those copies might be, they all pale to insignificance when compared to his stunning originals. And so, The Cinephiles is devoting an entire month to the work of this great filmmaker, starting this Friday with an episode devoted not to a single film, but to the man himself. Then next week, we begin our exploration of his masterpiece, Seven Samurai. This will certainly be a two-parter, or maybe even three. Finally, we'll finish off the month of Kurosawa with a commentary track on a film of your choosing. Just visit our Facebook page or check out Cine underscore Files on Twitter or the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram to participate in the survey. You can also find a link to the survey on Cinephiles.net, along with a new Kurosawa page where you can buy or stream some of his most important films. So that's the month of Kurosawa starting this Friday on the Cinephiles. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this month we are not just entering the world of a great film, we are entering the world of a great filmmaker. My name is Steve Morris, I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone, my name is John Roca, I'm a voiceover artist, I'm a writer and producer and uh, host of numerous podcasts here around town, and also a mad lover of the director we're going to talk about. And I almost feel like I should be doing the Jim, the, the Tashiro Lafuni uh, shuffle there uh, to talk about this. Because, brother, I think both of us have expressed our love for this director numerous times during our friendship. So to, to be able to finally talk about it on the podcast is exciting. Can I tell you something weird that just happened? Yeah. Is that I said we're going to talk about a great filmmaker. And that great filmmaker, of course, is Akira Kurosawa, yep. one of the greatest filmmakers, regardless of all time. Mm-hmm. And then in the next breath, I said, I'm a filmmaker. 
Yes. That felt really weird. <laughs> Putting myself, like, when I say I'm a filmmaker, I have made films. So, yeah. like, like in that sense, I'm a filmmaker. Yes. But in the way that Kurosawa is a filmmaker, I am not. Well, that's fair. I mean, like, that was just a <laughs> Few one of those... people are. No, so, yeah. well, this is the th- And it's funny. So, this is, we're welcome to our month of Kurosawa. Yeah. Um, and this is something, a tradition that started a few years ago when we did a month devoted to Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. And then last year, we did our month of Hitchcock. Yeah. And this year, we're doing Kurosawa, one of the, uh, as you said, one of the most remarkable directors in the history of film. Yeah. And I have to say, I am way more nervous about Kurosawa than I was about Wells or Hitchcock. And, mm. and I'll try to say why. The first thing is, is I read tons of biographies of Wells. I'd re- seen documentaries about Wells. Yeah. I'd seen basically all his films, you know, which isn't that many. And the fact is, is that of his films, maybe we can say four are great films, you know, and then a bunch sure. are, are flawed and interesting. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock has way more films. Mm-hmm. But Hitchcock, who's also obviously a great director, the themes within Hitchcock are very clear. Like, he didn't work in different genres. He didn't, and on some levels we describe, not that there aren't deep things in Hitchcock films, in general, he is not a deep filmmaker in the way that Akira Kurosawa is. So Akira Kurosawa has 33 or 34 films, I think, way more than Wells, and they are varied and complex. And the reality is, they're a bunch I haven't seen. So, you know, so there's a whole bunch of movies where I go like, or or the other thing is there are a bunch that I have seen, but I haven't seen them in 15 years. Yeah. You know, and so things like I've seen Stray Dog, Mm -hmm. but I don't remember it that well. And so I continually, as I'm trying to research this and trying to get my head around like the monolith that is Akira Kurosawa, Mm -hmm. I've had a hard time. Like I've been spending several days going, how do we, how do we dig into this? Well, the irony is that uh, Kurosawa also did this with his scripts. Mm. He would spend numerous amounts of time, didn't know if he got it right, would start shooting and be incredibly nervous about how it would all turn out. And so I think you're honoring the spirit of Kurosawa by being uh-huh. nervous about it and being overwhelmed by it. And I, I appreciate and respect that. I'm just as I, I've read that entire The Emperor and the Wolf book, and I maybe could remember. 10 things because it's such an incredibly dense book. I never, it's one I never finished. Oh, I, I yeah. think I started, I read 200 or 300 pages, it's and a, then it got, went down on the nightstand yeah. and it, it never went back up. It's a 978 page book or something. And then you've got that three hour documentary, which I always watch that I love to pieces about Kurosawa that was released. And then you have all the Criterion Collection, yeah. do, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, documentaries or, or, or retrospective uh, uh, videos that they shoot about him that you can watch and everything like that. But I think you can know about Stray Dog and The Bad Sleep Well and Red Beard and these other ones. But the pe- ones that people know and the people that who listen to us, um, they want to talk. Uh, they want us to touch on the big ones and the, the big ones because they're the greatest yeah. of his resume. Yeah, yeah. I think. I think the other thing that's interesting is that Orson Welles did nothing but talk. Yes, he loved to tell stories about himself, and there are endless stories about himself. Hitchcock had a very, very public persona. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy had his own TV show and was the host of the right. TV show, and we really, whereas Kurosawa, particularly in the first half of his career. He didn't want to talk at all. Yeah. He didn't want to answer questions. What's that Japanese thing? It's like very respectful, but, you know, keep get, let me have my space. Well, and he said, one of the things he said was, they said, well, what is the meaning of that scene in some mm. movie? And he said, well, if I knew the meaning of the scene, I would never have had to film the scene. I could have just told people. 
<laughs> well, that's kind of a cop out on some level. I mean, there, there, there's so much of his films. I mean, Rashomon, obviously, but so many of them are like, well, what is he saying? Yeah, you know what? Are, you know, and they're not exactly answerable. And that's what I love about his yeah. work. Yeah. Um, here's the other weird thing that's going to be about this podcast. So, of course, I want to give some bio and talk about his life. Sure. But strangely enough, we already did that because back when we did Yojimbo, you know, often when we tackle a new director, we give a brief bio. So we talked about his history, and I yes. and I don't like to repeat myself on the cinephiles, <laughs> and yet I feel like that's kind of what we have to do. Yeah. So some of this, if you already heard that Yojimbo podcast, which I think was a good one, this is going to be you know territory we've already. Uh, been on but we're going to go a lot deeper this time um the first thing is he came from a samurai family his father was a military man who was uh trained in kendo which is japanese swordsmanship and an uh, officer in the japanese military in the meiji period and kurosawa was the sixth i think child the youngest son and he's born in 1910 and his father's job when he was a kid was he was the physical education teacher at his school and what's interesting about, I think his father, and I don't know that much about him, but certain choices of his father, I think are so important uh, for who Kurosawa became. Because in addition to teaching Japanese sports like kendo and martial arts, he also taught baseball and basketball. And so he didn't have, which is interesting, particularly considering this is the Meiji period or just after the Meiji period where Japan has started to open up to the next rest of the world, is that he didn't go like, we're doing Japanese only. And in addition to the physical stuff, he took the kids to films. Yes. You know, American films, European films, encouraged them to read uh, Russian literature, which which... Kurosawa's love of Russian literature, particularly Dostoevsky, becomes a really important theme in his life. And so this openness to poetry, music, film, and art from around the world seems so key to who Kurosawa becomes as an artist. Yeah, well, it certainly expands his mind of what's out there, you know? And, you know, on the heels of last night with, uh, as we're recording this with the Golden Globes and Parasite and what Bong Joon-ho said in his speech talking about if you guys could just read that little bit of inch of text, it's amazing what how many more films you could enjoy. It's the same yeah. things. Asking Americans who are film lovers to open their minds to foreign language films on the same side. Here's a Japanese man teaching his son to appreciate the American culture right. as well as the Japanese culture. It's a good mix, which we see very good point, Steve, which we see in his films as we go forward, how much his respect for John Ford, his respect for those American filmmakers comes through in the pieces he creates. I, I think it still such... keeps, I'm sorry, still keeps it very much Japanese. Absolutely. Mm. Well, and one of the knocks on him in Japan was, oh, he's too American. Yes. You know, but I actually think, you know, he was inspired by where he was inspired. And yes. so there are things, aspects of his films that are really Japanese and aspects of his film that are really John Ford or mm -hmm. really William Wyler or Frank Capra. Um, he, uh, his closest family relative is his older brother. Yes. Uh, the middle brother, the, not the, not the eldest brother. And this guy, one of the key stories, and this comes from his something like an autobiography, which mm -hmm. is kind of half autobiography. Yeah. It's, and it's a pamphlet. It's almost. a pamphlet. It's, it's really small. not, it should be so much more bigger. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, and it ends too. Like pretty much once he starts directing, that's the end. I'm like, well, <laughs> You've not gotten to the points that I really want to hear about. That's why the title's perfect. It's yeah. something of an autobiography. Um, is the Great Kanto Earthquake. Yes. Which was devastated uh, Tokyo. And his brother, rather than say, let's stay safe, said, you need to come with me and see this. And so his brother drags his 12-year-old 
little brother, yeah. out into the wreckage of the earthquake where there are literally bodies piled up in the streets and says, you have to look at this. This is what the world is. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting moment that changes him. A lot of biographies talk about that moment changing him because he was forced to face the cost of war, the cost mm-hmm. of what um, uh, could happen and what man can do to each other nation to nation or person to person and his brother being you know what happens to his brother later clearly his brother was the sensitive one the artistic type who was given to feeling more for things that happened in the world than maybe his other brothers and maybe that's why kurosawa gravitated to him as much as he did because kurosawa would become an artist himself yeah he felt a kinship with that with that uh feeling that his brother had well and and i think this idea of Here's what the world is. Look at it. Mm-hmm. So many of his films are taking. Yeah. Here's this moment of of death, of pain, of loss, of of betrayal, of whatever it is, or heroism, or heroism. Yeah. And well, and and, and I think part of it is that he puts things into the uh, into the crucible and sees what will this human do. Yeah. Okay. Now you've been put in this situation. Yeah. You know, Tashiro Mifune after he's been tortured and he's broken at the end of Yojimbo. Now what are you going to do? Right. You know, look at this moment because that is the moment where you become a hero or you become a coward. I think the same thing with high and low. Absolutely. We're going to take the son of the butler. Right. You thought it was your son. Now the son of the butler is taken. Are you still as willing to save that son as you were your own? What would you do in this situation? Yeah. Brilliant. I think that I think that becomes a huge part of who he is. Mm-hmm. He uh, he decides he wants to become a painter, and what he describes. And and I think you see this in not what I think is one of his great films, but in Dreams mm. uh, during the Van Gogh section, is that he says that once he saw Cezanne, then he would look at the world, and that's how he saw the world. Wow. Once he saw Van Gogh, that's how he'd see the world. Is that the and you could see the way he uses the painterly qualities of of Kurosawa are so profound. Yeah. Maybe the most painterly director in history, I think. Um, the only one, strangely enough, that I put, although the paintings are t- entirely different, <laughs> would be Wes Anderson, who also has oh, an incredibly interesting, filled with color, static. Like you look, feel like you're looking at a painting. Yeah. And Kurosawa, uh, the only thing that makes his not that way is that Kurosawa's images are filled with movement, mm-hmm. and so it's as if that Van Gogh painting has come alive, and the light is swirling through the leaves and the trees and all the ways that he sees the world. Yeah. You know, like you could see one of my favorite images, and this is this is a movie we're not going to talk too much about today because we're going to go in deep. In Seven Samurai, when the young samurai goes into the field of flowers with the girl, yeah. that is like, it's right out of Van Gogh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the way that the light plays and the way that it moves through nature that is painterly. Well, I think that's what's fascinating when you think about that moment you just mentioned earlier too, Steve, the idea of making him walk out there and see those bodies. Here's Kurosawa who never forgets that the also that there's such beauty that's possible in the world to counter this horror. And you yes. find those moments within his movies where he really appreciates the beauty of the situations, the beauty of the human being, or the beauty of the world. And that's something that you can't help but be moved by and when he does it it always elevates the film into classic status in my opinion i think that is a great point i hadn't thought of it in that way Mm. but you're absolutely right there's the mix of beauty and pain Mm. and i like six movies just popped into my head where i think that's true and of course we're going to talk about some of these films so i'm going to shut up about it at the moment (laughs) um 
So this brother of hers that he's lo- he loves, uh, his gig was he was a silent film narrator. Yes. Which I think is... An, and so, you know, you're in Japan, and there was a guy whose job at the local movie house was to re- say what's going on. And sometimes they would say lines of the film. Sometimes they would just translate the, the cards. And this guy brought his little brother in to see all the movies. Mm-hmm. And so it just was part of his family that connected him to film... And of course, that brother commits suicide. Yeah, and that's what I meant earlier. Yeah. Um, he's very moved by the world. I think that that he loses the job or something, and this is what causes him to go into a depression and then yeah. eventually kills himself. But Kurosawa felt, from what I'd read, right? I, I obviously never met the man, but what I've read, it's, it seemed like Kurosawa felt a duty to honor his brother in. With this, with this work, with his work, yeah, uh, because of how his brother had brought and introduced films to him, and his dad introduced films to him. But his brother, really seeing his brother come alive and doing uh, the narration and bringing it to life for the people, essentially becoming a storyteller by the fire for the tribe, and that is what Kurosawa was blown. I mean, um, was really attracted to and moved by. I, I, I think he was devastated by this loss. Well, and and that's also when he gave up painting. Yes, you know, and so I, I think there. There would be no, we would never be having this conversation if that brother had not killed himself. Fair point. Like out of, and and you know what? It relates to just what you were saying a moment ago is out of tragedy comes beauty. Yeah. You know, that's, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. And and I'm sure many of us have had moments where we dealt with some incredible tragedy and, and the thought, I remember having this exact thought of like, I need to use this. I have to, right. I have to make something good out of this. Yeah. You know? That's a really profound motivator, and that motivates him to seeing an ad in a paper where the studio that would become Toho Studios says, we're looking for assistant directors, and he had to write some essays, and he had to show up, and he he thought he had just blown it on this thing, and they bring him in and say, yeah, we want you to be an assistant director. And as, and as we said this in the, the um, Yojimbo uh, intro, but but... An assistant director at this time in Japan is entirely different from what an assistant director is today mm. in the United States. The assistant director today in the United States is one of the most difficult, challenging, stressful, tough jobs in the film industry, but it is not a creative job. It is a job of logistics, of getting all this stuff done in the time you have to do it. And, you know, God bless the good assistant directors out there. They make films happen. But that's not what went on in Japan. In Japan at this time, they were like, this is how you're going to train to be a director. And in particular, this director, uh, Yamamoto, who, who Kurosawa called Yamasan, mm-hmm. Yamasan saw something in Akira Kurosawa. And so the first thing he did was he made him write scripts, which he'd never done before. Mm-hmm. And he said, and made them write him and rewrite him and rewrite him and rewrite him. And then he brought him on the set and he would do things like, Direct, 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 and then go, I'm going to go get some tea. You direct the next scene. <laughs> Can you imagine a director doing that today? No. Yeah. The ego, well, the American ego would not allow that to happen. But I don't find it out of the room of possibility for the Japanese ego. Yeah. It's because the, it's about passing it on. Yeah. You know? And so in that moment, it would not surprise me. That's what the master does to the right. student, right? Absolutely. You know, show me what you've learned. Show, do, do do this thing. Surprise you, yeah. right? Paint the fence. The karate kid, small, small version of it. Paint the fence. Well, I'm tired of painting the fence. All right, let's fight. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, everything you taught me, right. I actually can use. You know, yeah. Well, and then, and then he would make him edit the film. Yeah. So he would have his own editor. This is just crazy to me. He'd have his own edit editor edit the scene. And then he would have, I'm assuming he struck a separate work print because you're cutting on film mm. and give it to 
Kurosawa and have Kurosawa edit the scene. And then he would compare the two and then he would tell Kurosawa, no, that's not good enough. Do it again. And so he, this is, it's training. Yeah. And if you look at his career, Kurosawa throughout his entire career was wrote on all of his films and edited all of his films. Mm-hmm. And he, yes, he worked with other screenwriters. He always had other screenwriters yes. to partner, partner with. It was really important to him. Um, and he worked with other editors, but he was always in their cut and film. He seemed he, he essentially had a writer's room for every film. Yeah, as, as I was, as just one of the things I remember from the book, just endless uh, sessions of them writing all four people, five people surrounding a table, writing all together these scenes. Well, and what's so interesting to films. me for a guy who was known as the emperor <laughs> because of his temper and dictatorial ways, which is certainly true, he says over and over again, "I needed collaborators. Mm-hmm. I needed." cinematographers to tell me a better way to do it. I needed writers to challenge what I thought. And if you think of, you know, all almost all great filmmakers had great collaborators. Like yeah. the, like the example that's popping in my mind is Pixar, which we think of as this it must be the happiest most loving place in the world and it's like no, Pixar is filled with constant constant people challenging each other yeah. to make it better. They compete all the time. When yep. I did that one set visit or one visit to the studios for Inside Out, it was phenomenal to hear these filmmakers talk about how other filmmakers at Pixar challenged them all the time and questioned their decisions in a way to try to make the film better. And I'm like, what an incredible way to turn a possibly negative experience yep. into a hopefully positive one. Well, and what, what he says, he says you can't force a movie. Mm. And I think that is so true mm. in everything I've seen and everything I've learned from doing the cinephiles is that it's got to have a light of its own. He describes it as you plant a seed. And you see what grows. And of course, having these other people challenging you is what's going to make it grow strong. Yeah. Your first idea, I'm going to just make that, that doesn't usually work that well. <laughs> yeah, right. One of the things he said, he said, he's not happy when the shot comes out exactly as he imagined. He's not happy when the actors do exactly what he imagined. He's happy when the actors and crew come up with new ideas and change things because that makes him have new ideas. Yeah. I think this is a great. So one of the examples of this is a movie at the very end of his career, which isn't I, I, I wouldn't call a great film, but Rhapsody in August. Right. He's making the film. He's 80 something years old. It's a, a, a grandmother. It's like three generations in mm-hmm. post-war Japan. And we have the little kids and they're at like a spot overlooking. It might be Nagasaki because it relates to the atomic bomb mm-hmm. dropping. And there's a shot where they're uh, at this overlook and there's a railing. And of course, Kurosawa has storyboarded everything exactly as he wants to shoot it. And then as they're there in between a rehearsal, the eight-year-old or 10-year-old kid climbs up one step on the railing. And he looks at that and he's like, it never occurred to me that the kid would do that. Mm. And then he thought, well, I'm an 80-year-old man. I would never do that because that would be really scary. But for the kid, it's not. And because the kid do that, he went, oh, I can't do this static shot. I should do a dolly shot. And because he's doing the dolly shot, it changed the lighting. Because the kid was up higher, it changed the blocking. And that changed the dialogue. And everything changed just because this little kid stepped up one step on the railing. That And this is its something, it's funny, it, I mentioned I think before that I'm starting to write a book on directing, and one of the things in the book is the idea of vision, and we tend to think of vision as static. I have a vision for this thing, and what director vision has to be is dynamic, yeah. is that it's, it's maintaining a vision and refining a vision over changing circumstances. And that really small example of a kid stepping up a railing, that is what true director's vision is. Yeah. Uh, his first film is Sanshiro Sugata. Um, have you ever seen this one? Yes. 
So this one actually is really important to me. Uh, yeah, go ahead too. Well, because so first of all, it, it, it's the story of Sanjuro Sugata. It, it's made in 1943 or 44, so it's the middle of the war, and there was strong censorship from the Japanese government because they could only show things that were pro-Japanese in very very specific ways. There's uh, rationing. There's very little money. It's a very small budget, and he makes a classically sort of Japanese story. It's about martial arts, and it is a story where a young big, strong guy wants to study with the local master and the local master is a jujitsu guy. And then he follows a bunch of the jujitsu students and they kind of start pushing around the master of the judo school. Judo is a more modern uh, martial art based on jujitsu. And that guy throws everybody into the the harbor. Right. And this is like Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san, you know, throwing the, the, the bad Johnny and all those kids around outside the fence. And he goes, oh, well, I want to follow that guy. And he learns a little bit of judo, and then he goes out and uh, goes to a bar and starts pushing everybody around because he's yeah. got some judo moves. And he comes back, and the master's like going, oh, your whole your kind of judo is not like my kind of judo. Right. You know, you're very strong, and that's your problem. I can't teach you anymore. You're too afraid to learn what I need to teach you. And the the guy says, I'm not afraid of anything. And he goes, well, you know, he says, yes, you are. You're afraid to die. And he says, I'm not afraid to die. And the master says, then die. And the guy throws himself into a, a, a lotus pond uh, right outside the master's door and waits there for days just to die. And then there's this transformative moment, which I think is so beautiful. And this is the guy's first film. And he's sitting there after days and days, and he looks up at the moon, and he looks down at a closed lotus, and he looks up at the moon, and the moon becomes the lotus as it opens, and he realizes he wants to live. And that is the transformative moment. So this to me, as a guy who was doing martial arts in my 20s, like I was like, this is that connection between the physical skill and the character and the spiritual awakening and the evolution of the human. And particularly the line, you're too strong, that's your problem, which is definitely true in martial arts. Strength is frequently the enemy to learning proper technique because you can compensate for things with strength and speed and you right. can do it wrong and get away with it. And so the fact that he had to weaken to his lowest point, to next to death, to have the spiritual awakening. And so when I went, decided I wanted to be a screenwriter and I went, what am I going to write my first movie about? I went, well, I don't really understand what screenplay structure is. So I'll just take a really simple super clear screenplay and I'll base my first screenplay on that. So my first screenplay is uh, the story of an African-American Marine who studies Aikido in Japan right after World War II. Mm. Because most of the martial arts when they came to the US, they came from soldiers, from veterans coming back from Asia and that's who brought karate and judo and jiu-jitsu and all that mm. stuff to the US. And so I wanted to make the story about, and so I just totally copied the structure, including the scene in the Lotus Pond. <laughs> and of course, I gave Kurosawa credit. I mean, well, I didn't actually buy the rights or anything, <laughs> but, I turned, but I studied that movie over and over and over again to learn how the structure of a movie works. Yeah. And so it became a really important film for me. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to him. Of course. Not just because it was his first film, but also because, in my opinion, when I've watched that film, having read the biography on him, right. this is his brother. Mm. Oh, wow. This is, to me, this is idea what he would have liked to have had his brother learn or understand or accept or want to live versus wanting to die. The guy willingly, see, mm. because the master understands that 
the guy has some kind of um, anger inside him that can uh, destroy him. And so he says to him, you're afraid to die. He says, I'm not afraid. I'm going to... Yeah, because that's why he was picking the fights. That's why he's wanting to learn to fight. He yeah. wants to have the fight. He wants to, in some small right. way, maybe take his own, have himself die in death. He finds a nobility in that. But it's actually having the strength to live yeah. that is harder than having the desire to die. Well, and it's it, well, it's also the I want this skill to have power over other people, right. as opposed to I want this skill to have enlightenment right. for myself. Yeah. You know, and so even though this is. A small film. It's an action film. The fight scenes are great. Yep. This is one of the things because one of the interesting things about Kurosawa, as opposed to Kubrick or Wells or some of the other great filmers we might talk about, he liked entertainment. Yes, he was happy to have a great action sequence. He wanted to do that stuff really well. But you also have this moment, and it's this moment I think we're going to talk about is like the crux between life and death, mm-hmm. and who. And, and I think what I keep going back to with him is he's always asking the question. Well, who are you? Right. Who is this person and how will you behave now? So it's challenging the audience. Exactly. Um, and, and those, you know, themes of perseverance, like that's Karate Kid, it's Rocky, it's mm-hmm. Die Hard, it's all of those, you know, basic character things that we're going to see through Western films all the time. Yeah. Uh, the most beautiful is in 1944. I've never seen it. I've never seen that one. Either. It's, uh, it's uh, factory workers. And this is, he's trying to make almost a documentary about women working in the factories mm-hmm. during World War II. Um, Sanchiro Sugato 2 is right after that. I've never seen it. Yeah, I know. Um, I've seen scenes from it. That one's tough to find. And Kurosawa hates it. Yeah. Yeah. This seems like he was forced to make a sequel. There's no money. <laughs> you know, He's a Hollywood filmmaker already. <laughs> Japan is <laughs> Japan is losing the war. You're going to make this and sequel, And he just kid. goes off and make it. Um, the military forced him to do it. Um, uh, it. It just sort of what it was. I'm sure you don't um, He... Uh, the next one is uh, They Who Step on the Tiger's Tail. Again, yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Have you seen this one? No. Um, I haven't seen this one, but I, I I think it's a modern one for that time, I think. It's a samurai one. Yeah. It's a samurai story, yeah. but but there were no horses left in Japan because it's 1945. Right. The military forced him to make, make it. He didn't want to make this one at all. Um, but it does start to show his inventive use of the camera yeah. and some of his lighting techniques and his painterly style that we're going to see later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, no Regrets for Our Youth is 1946. Yeah. It's another one I haven't seen. Uh, but it does. It, again, is him pointing at an issue. And the issue is there's a professor who was a communist. Mm-hmm. And now the government is you know, blackballed him. And then even someone gets executed as one of his students. And what he, one of the things that he was really, really against was censorship Mm -hmm. is that he wasn't a communist, but didn't think that the government should get involved in telling people what they should think. And so this is probably one of his more political movies and maybe one of his less except, uh, successful. Um, Oh yeah. So here's a quote from him. He said, if you are only concerned with how you say something, without having anything to say. And even the way you say it won't come to anything besides technique. Technique is there only to support a director's intentions. If you rely solely on the technique, uh, the original idea will not appear. Techniques do not enlarge the director, they limit him. Technique alone, uh, with nothing to support its weight, always crushes the basic idea, which is what should prevail. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great, because here's one of the masters of technique. Yeah. And he goes, technique's only serving the purpose. It is not the purpose itself. You as a uh, Aikido uh, teacher know that so well. Technique is great, but if there's nothing behind the technique, it 
doesn't carry the beauty. It doesn't really honor the martial art. I imagine I'm speaking. You know, I no, I'm I think martial, you're exactly right. But I think with anything, if you don't honor the technique as an actor, if you don't honor the technique, you don't give it real depth or weight. The technique is just. I've I've seen many technically good actors. Right. But if you don't have any real soul or humanity to it, um, it doesn't carry the same magic that it should. Hundred percent agree. Yeah. I'm reading this book or listening to it called Range, which is about. The difference between focusing entirely on one thing, which would be like the Tiger Woods style, mm. or or having a generalized thing, and what the difference is, and it's a really really good book, mm. and and explores like that the Tiger Woods approach is really good for golf, chess, and classical music, but not good for jazz and all these other things. Right, because you need a broad. Anyway, one of the things he talks about in the book is most students really want to learn the process to get the right answer, mm. and so it's like, well, tell me how to do it, and what is the deeper lesson is the concept, you know, not how do I do it, right, but what right. does this all mean? And in martial arts, this is definitely where I am in Aikido is that yeah. the technique when it's really good falls away. Mm -hmm. It's the principles under the technique. That's what really works. Yeah. It's the why, why are you doing it? It's not, and it's happened with my students all the time. Yeah. That's a cool shot. Why are you doing that shot? This is why I approach, this is how I approach Star Wars. To me, all those species and planets and ships and characters are all great. But to me, it's the why. What's the right. concept underneath all of this? What yeah. is he trying to say? What are you getting at here? What's the philosophy behind it all? And that's it, how I dissect Star Wars. I'm, I I won't tell you the name of all the characters. I, yeah, well, I certainly a, can. Yeah, it's yeah. about what's the, what's the point? What's the concept? What's underneath it? And that's I think that's what's a great point here. Um, his next film is One Wonderful Sunday, mm. uh, which I've seen clips from, but I've yes. never seen. Um, and this is, to what you said earlier about the beautiful moment, that's this movie. Yeah. This movie is a young couple with 35 yen in their pocket who have one day to have a romantic day, and it's just an episodic, this is the things that they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kurosawa's three favorite American directors are John Ford, obviously, Weiler, and Frank Capra. Yeah. And this is his Capra movie. Yeah. You know? Um Drunken Angel, 1948. This one I've seen. This is a good, seen. This is a good, a good movie. Movie. Yep. And this is our first introduction of a young actor, Toshiro Mifune. Yeah. I think this is the most remarkable collaboration between director and actor in the history of film. I think that's fair to say. I think that's absolutely fair to He's say. Basically in half of Kurosawa's films. Mm -hmm. And in almost every film from now until Redbeard, there's like two that he's not in. Yeah. Um, I think it's 16 or 17 films total. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, there's Scorsese and De Niro or Scorsese and DiCaprio yes, now. Absolutely. There are other ones. You know, Spielberg's made several movies with Tom Hanks, yes. but not that many. Right. You know, the the I can't think of another collaboration as profound as this one. There really isn't. And, yeah. and certainly one that made both men. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Takashi Shimura is in this one as well. Yeah, he's Shimura. he's in like fifteen of the Kurosawa oh, yeah. films, ensemble and lead. Yep. He, he's vacillated between both. Yeah, and this is the story of a a doctor who is an alcoholic mm. and a gangster who has tuberculosis. <laughs> and again, I think it's this thing that we've been talking about. Of now, you have to make a choice. You're facing your own alcoholism and despair, mm -hmm. and now you've met this person who's a bad guy your duty is to help heal him. And how, what do we do in these circumstances? Right. And the doctor has a sick daughter and there's a lot of 
face it. It's, it's that going back to that earthquake and this is what the world is. Look at it. Yeah. You know? What are your principles? What are your principles? Once yeah. they're actually challenged. Yeah. What is your real principles? And I think a lot of us can take lessons from that these days. Well, and the next film has a similar thing, which is, uh, this is one I haven't seen, The Quiet Duel, which is 1949. No, I haven't seen Quiet Duel either. And this is, again, but I looked up what it's about. It's Tashir Mifuni, and he's, mm. a, he's a, a, a surgeon in the war. And while trying to save a man's life, he gets stuck and gets uh, some of that guy's blood, and that guy is infected with syphilis. Oh. And so now he discovers that through no fault of his own, through only trying to be a good person, yeah. he has this terrible disease. And again, it's, okay, now what are you going to do with it? Yeah, right. What are you going to do? Um, and what's interesting, too, is, by the way, this, so he's under Japanese censorship during the war. And now it's the occupation, so he's under American censorship. So the original ending had Mufuni going crazy. And the Americans said, you can't do that. And he had to put on a happy ending instead. <laughs> oh, Americans. We've reached Stray Dog. Oh, yeah. This is, to me, where Mufuni really emerges. And this is, he's a, a cop mm-hmm. who's lost his gun. Yeah. And the gun is used in various crimes. I think, in my personal opinion, I think Paul Thomas Anderson kind of did an homage to this in Magnolia. Mm. With how John C. Riley flips out when he can't find his gun. And the gun is sure. used later. I think this is an influenced thing from this film. Um, and Takashi Shimura is in this mm-hmm. again. I mean, it's amazing how many movies these two guys are in. Yeah. Um, you see in Sanshiro Sugata, but you definitely see by this point, is the importance that weather plays in Kurosawa mm. films. So whether it's the wind in Sugata, whether it's, uh, and in this film, it's the heat. It is hot. And the heat is affecting everything that goes along. And I think it's, it's just Kurosawa likes to, Turn up the pressure. Okay, here's, you know, Tashir Mifuni going to have to fight a whole bunch of bandits in Yojimbo. Here's the same scene with crazy wind. Yeah. And the crazy wind just makes it cooler. What's interesting about um, Stray Dog? It's another movie Kurosawa doesn't like. Yeah, I was, yeah, I'm always amazed they didn't like this one. Because I think it's a good movie. It is. Um, and, and what's interesting it's too? A crime drama. It's a cop drama, right? Well, and it does. It's just like High and Low, just like Drunken mm. Angel. Is that this guy who ostensibly is trying to do the right thing? He starts to go mad. Yeah. He becomes the mad dog. Yeah, because he's so racked with his guilt, and he starts to make decisions that are actually immoral in order to do this thing that he feels he needs to do morally to assuage his guilt. Right. You know, that's that's right into this stuff. Mm-hmm. And like in all of these. Coruscant doesn't come along and say, "And this is right." <laughs> he just goes, "Here you go." Right. You know, take with it what you take of it what you will. Scandal in 1950. Mm-hmm. Don't know it. Haven't yeah. seen it. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephiles' new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad, and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. 
Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, Rashomon. Yeah. Do you remember when you first saw it? Yes. Uh, in my once again, I've mentioned this numerous times uh, at Charlottesville right. at the library on the laser on disc. Laserdisc, yeah. yeah, seeing it. I uh, saw a lot of the Kurosawa films for the first time that way. And I wasn't the biggest fan of Rashomon the first time I saw it. It has grown on me over the years. I am a hundred percent in agreement. <laughs> So I saw, I, I'm 99% sure Seven Samurai was my first Kurosawa film. Oh. And then I think I saw Yojimbo next. Mm-hmm. And then I heard, okay, Rashomon's the next one. And I was in college, so I'm maybe 20 or 21. Yeah. And I love the samurai thing and the sword fight thing. And so in my mind, Rashomon was going to be another one of those. Right. And then I watched it. And what so frustrated me as a young person was I went... Well, what is the truth? I mean, there should there is a real truth. Yeah, you wanted the and, answer, and, and and in fact, there is no way to figure out the answer. No. For those of you who haven't seen Rashomon, is the story of a murder and a rape told from multiple perspectives, including the ghost of the one of the people that uh, was mur- the ghost of the guy that was murdered. Yeah. And in the end, there just there's some things that line up, and there's some things that are like, no, these can't these can't both be true. Right. And it's the original fake news. And, well, this is where. <laughs> I've sort of come to today, which I was like, oh no, this is the the Rashomon is the truth. Rashomon is the truth. Yeah. Because we all interpret what we see in different ways and we all 
forget conveniently certain things or chronological things uh, because we have a narrative we want to tell about our experience in a situation. Well, and one of the things that's been proven over and over again, which is, it seems just so counterintuitive, is the more traumatic the experience, the less good we are at remembering what the hell happened. True. And so, and so, like you think about, like just things from recent is there is the podcast serial that was about oh, yeah, this yeah. murder. Man, that's Rashomon. Yeah. Because you're listening to, I don't know, I mean, it's a, you, you listened to yes, it? Yes, I did. It's great. Mm-hmm. And what you keep waiting for is like, oh, well, this is going to be the truth. And then you hear something else and you're like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Well, that can't, they both can't be true. And what you're hearing is interviewing all these people about a thing that happened a while ago. And you're going like, well, did you leave the library at 3 or 3.15? Well, we don't know. And if we knew, maybe we'd know the truth. But we're never going to know. You know, or there's the, I think it's the Making a Murderer mm-hmm. documentary that's on Netflix, and it's the same thing. I mean, there are things in there where I go like, I don't think that guy had anything to do with this. But there's also sort yeah. of, well, wait, if you weren't a bad guy, why were you there at that time? And the answer is that, that real, there. I believe there is real hard and fast truth out there. Mm-hmm. But often finding that truth and being 100% certain of it is very difficult. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like an example that uh, Sam Harris uses that I like is that... There is a truth of exactly what number of birds are on the ground on the planet Earth right now. <laughs> there is a number. Yeah. But we will never know that number. It would be impossible. And as soon as you tried to count them, some birds would move and then the number would be wrong. So there is a fact, but we're never going to have access to that fact. Right. And memory and self-interest and all those other things are, is that the thing that I remember is not the truth. But And this is why I also think Rashomon is such an important film at that time, 1955, years after the war. Who is Japan under American occupation, right? Who are we? Right. Who are we trying to tell ourselves that we are when we've dropped two massive nuclear bombs and killed yep. endless citizens? Count, I'm sorry, countless citizens. Um, and we tell ourselves we're the good guys. We tell ourselves we did the right thing to save lives. That's a calculation. Who knows if it was true or not, but it's a calculation. And so this whole idea that this event happened and there are multiple people telling you different things of what they think actually happened, right. which all serves their own truth, their own purpose, their own narrative, their own societal, I mean, their own construct that they've constructed to f- function in the world. And this is such a brilliant film in that way because I think Kane does that too in a kind of a, oh, sure. in, in a pseudo way with with uh, what Orson Welles did other, but like, yeah, this film is fascinating because it, I think at the time it is all these different narratives that are going on about what other people are telling you your truth is. And you're saying, no, this is what I think happened. This is how I saw it. This is what's really going on. And you have conflicting narratives all the time. Well, and, and, and the fact is, is that you can't trust your own memory. Right. You know, I mean, that's the, and one of the, so one thing about having a kid is my kid would come home and say, this kid stole the ball from me. Hmm. And I go, well, is that the truth? And it might be that the kid took the ball. Right. It might be that Jacks had just taken the ball from that kid the moment before, but he's not telling me about that part of the story. My son is not a great observer. Hmm. So there could be facts that are happening all around him that he was unaware of. So in his mind, the story might be true. And it right. could be he's lying to me to not be in trouble. Yeah. And so there's all these levels of lying to yourself, lying to someone else, not really understanding the situation in the first place, yeah. or not seeing another person's story that came and how they interacted with you and what it meant. And so we're, I, I think we're treading water when it comes to truth. Mm. You know, as much as, like I said, I, there is a number of how many birds are on the ground yes. right now. Yeah. There are real facts and people that 
dispute the idea that, yeah. you know, like that. No, no, there are facts and yeah. some of them we can find out. But some of them like dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, anyone who says that's a hard and fast, simple, good, bad, yeah. right, wrong thing, they're not paying attention. Yeah, That's a, as complicated and difficult a thing as we can ever talk mm-hmm. about. Um, Rashomon was a short shoot. Yes. Pretty simple. Shot in like uh, under a month, I think. There are not a lot of sets in Rashomon. The studio didn't like it. Too abstract. It didn't do very well critically in Japan. And one guy from the Venice Film Festival saw it and said, why don't you submit this? Now, Japanese cinema at the time right. was not important. Yes. Nobody in the world was looking. I'm not saying nobody. But in terms of looking at the, the hubs of world cinema, mm-hmm. cinema, Japan was not one of the places. And they said, okay, we'll submit it. It was like Russia, Italy, France. And, of course, the United States. And the United States, of course, yeah. Yeah, and England. And, um, right. Yeah, but not Japan. Right. And, and it wins the grand prize at uh, the Venice Film Festival. And suddenly, Japanese cinema and Kurosawa in particular are thrust onto the world stage. Yeah. It is just a huge, huge deal. Uh, what's really crazy is this is really only his second. So Japan would divide things into historical films and modern films. And Sugata, which was in the Meiji period, they consider that modern. So this is only his second historical film. Right. That's they those who tread on the tiger's tail and Rashomon, which is of course what we most know him for. Yeah. But then the visuals and again weather like that rainy gate, the visuals in Rashomon, mm. the way light plays in the forest as we move through it, amazing. The wind. I've never seen the idiot. His version of Dostoevsky's oh, yeah, film no, in Night Fifty One. The one thing I've heard about it, it's Mifuni again playing the the main character. Uh, he does love Dostoevsky and Russian novels. And the thing that I've heard about it is it's too true to the book. Mm-hmm. Is that it's not, you don't see Kurosawa strutting his stuff because he's really, really reverent of Dostoevsky. Right. Which, and, and if you look at Dostoevsky, what is he looking at? People in crisis moments and choices between right and wrong and morality mm. and ambiguity and gray areas. And, you know, Kurosawa doesn't consider himself an existentialist, but those things those themes are really there yeah ikiru ikiru oh man this is the one that challenged me as a kurosawa fan because like you steve i saw rajma first then samurai then yojimbo then sinjuro yeah uh even saw i think i even saw kagamusha before i saw uh i did i definitely did ikiru right um and ron i certainly saw ron yep um and then i saw ikiru and i remember renting this on dvd in la Mm. It's a three-hour film. Yeah. And it asks a lot of Where the main guy dies halfway through. He is suffering with cancer through the whole film. It's a beautiful film in terms of its message. It's Takashi Shimura. Takashi Shimura, yeah, playing the lead. But he is like, he's 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 a nobody. He's a low-level worker at a government job. He gets stomach cancer. He has dates he's going to die. Like, there's predicted when he's going to die. And it starts to change him. And in him becoming more aware of the world, more in touch with what he's going to lose, the beauty, once again, the beauty That's of the world just and the tragedy. the same thing. Right? He is trying to pass that on to whoever he can pass that on to. And sometimes he's ridiculed and sometimes the it's accepted, but he is just like the clock. He is constant to get to where he's going. And then you have that moment with him on the swing where he goes all the way back to that time of being a kid. Yeah. And you think about and it's such it's a film that struck me as poignant because it's like, well, that's the thing with all of us. As we get older and farther and farther away from being a child, 
the life gets tougher and harder and all these things come in, but we never lose that desire to go back to that time and remember when everything was possible and things were happy if we had any semblance of a happy childhood. And I love that moment. Plus his voice is, oh, the, the score is so great. Oh, score. Yeah. What, what, what I think about it, and I haven't seen it. This is of, I'd say this is the one that I've most wanted to watch again mm. based on my research of Kurosawa. Cause I haven't been, uh, I was probably just out of film school. So it was probably late nineties that yeah. I saw it the last time. And what I remember from it, is that you would like to believe, like if I, if Steve Morris were making this film, I would go, this person discovers that they're dying. They learn profound lessons about what their life has been and, and seeing the beauty in the world and connecting with other people and doing positive things. And then they touch all these people who gain this positive experience right. and they die and we're all happy about it. <laughs> and that is not what Kurosawa does. Mm -hmm. Because, and I think, again, it goes to the like, here's the earthquake, look at it. This is the world. Is that certainly... Our main character does that when yeah. he discovers he's dying. He looks into the face of death yeah. and he discovers profound things. But the essence of him, the profound things that he's learned, they don't get passed on. Yeah. Not completely. Like he does touch some people in some ways, but the people go on. Mm -hmm. And the 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 whatever that was of him dies with him. And some people are like, oh, but did he commit suicide? Did he, like, what happened? Right. Like, they don't really know because we don't actually get to transmit the totality of our experience to people that survive us after we're gone. Mm -hmm. We remain unknowable, you know, to some degree. Like, I think about the death of my dad, and I, was, I wasn't there when he died, but I was certainly around him when he was getting sick, and mm -hmm. he didn't transmit to me his truth you know right <laughs> we talked a couple of times but in the end he was a mystery to me yeah. on some levels and, and on, on some level even the people you're closest to are mysteries to you oh sure you know yeah and, and that's a that makes this movie it's a rough film in a lot of ways but it's an honest film and I totally that's what i love about the film when i come back to it is it's he's an honest portrayal he doesn't go for the easy cop out the nice ending blah 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 he shows you what how humans really do. Yep. He, he completely short circuits this the feel good movie by yep. showing you an actual process and journey and how some people would react to it positively and negatively. Well, also showing you or indifferently. Well, also showing you real beauty. Yes. You know. Yeah. I mean, that shot of him on the swing, mm. as sad as it is, mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Yeah. And and this is, and and uh, you know, who is the most visually stunning director? There's a long list. Sure. But. Of course, I was on that list. There are iconic, yeah, there are iconic yeah. shots within his movies, yeah. certainly. So this came right after Rashomon. Mm. This is a huge hit. And then next is 1954 and Seven Samurai. Yeah. I mean, what a run. Well, I mean, and the thing is, Steve, think about this. He's just been thrust onto the world stage, as you said. Most directors might crumble from that pressure. Yeah. This period is his most creative and legendary period of filmmaking. And and we're obviously we're going to talk about Seven Samurai so mm -hmm. I don't want to spend a lot of time here but the but the big thing that I do want to say is that this is an important film for the world. Yes. In 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 the way Rashomon is not. Not that Rashomon's not an important film, but it's not a popular film. Right. You know, because it's difficult and Ikiru is difficult. But Seven Samurai Every, people would read those little tiny subtitles mm -hmm. and, and and would experience this. I mean, this is a this is a world changing film. And yet, it's a three hour samurai. Film. Yep, 
It's yeah. so groundbreaking in that way. Who ever thought a three-hour samurai film? Yet you never feel it. Yeah. And again, it's, of course, Takashi Shimura and Tashiro Mifune. Yeah. Um, they, they're they both remarkable actors mm-hmm. because they play such different parts. And they no matter what film you watch them in, their ability to play status up and down the mm. uh, uh, range is incredible. I mean, Mufuni has already been a lead and a very solid lead in a number of his films. Here he is playing almost like he's being announced to the world again I, in this for character. Years, I thought this was his introduction <laughs> yeah. because I didn't wasn't entirely clear on because right. it seems like that that brash young actor mm-hmm. coming in and playing a supporting role. Yeah, you know, and Takashi Shimura, like you just see him in Ikiru, and now you see him as the general. Yeah, like that is an unbelievable transformation. Yep. Uh, next, in 1955, we have Record of a Living Being, another one I haven't seen. I haven't seen that one. Um, but it also, it's funny, because as, as you look at some, what the themes are, this is Tashiro Mifune, who's a wealthy factory owner, mm-hmm. who is so terrified of the uh, the nuclear tests at Bikini Atoll that were d- b- dropping these hydrogen bombs, mm-hmm. that he says, we have to get the hell out of Japan. It's not safe. And tries to convince his family to do it, and they won't leave. And so he burns down his own factory to get all of his family to get the hell out of Japan, and they end up putting him in a mental institution. Mm. And again, it's the this is he looks at the world mm-hmm. and he sees the hydrogen bomb, right? And says, "We got to go." Yeah, that's the choice that he makes. And I wonder if this is his message to Japan. I absolutely think so. Right? You well, into the world. Right into the world. You want to become a nuclear power, didn't you? Not did you not see what happened? Yeah. Right. Well, it, it's so he didn't talk that much. Mm. He did say that he felt that the United States should be indicted for the dropping of the atomic bomb and that they should apologize. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, as a I, and I was trying to figure out. I wonder where he was. At Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah. was, where was was he anywhere nearby? What was his experience? Did he know people? I mean, the devastation of the the firebombing of Tokyo and the destruction of those two cities with mm-hmm. atomic bombs, and what the Japanese army had been through, he witnessed it all. Yeah, you know, that's like the Kanto earthquake. That's got to inform who he is as a filmmaker. Yeah, fair point. Throne of Blood. Oh. This is this one is. Like, if you want to understand Shakespeare, watch Throne of Blood. Because um, obviously, yeah. he doesn't translate the Shakespeare right. lines. But the story of Macbeth is there to see in a way that is so poignant and otherworld, supernatural. Yeah. Which is what the play is supposed to be. And I, I love this film. So my professor in college, my mm. favorite theater professor, is a guy named Lauren Buckman. And Lauren Buckman had written a book on Shakespeare and film. Mm called uh, Still in Movement, I believe was the name of the book. Mm. It's not a famous book. It's a <laughs> professor, but he was my favorite professor. Right. And I remember asking him, so what's the best one? Because that's, of course, you know, what is the best what you filmed version of Shakespeare? And he said, without hesitation, Throne of Blood. Yep. Which is interesting, just as you say, the thing people most think about with Shakespeare is the language. Yeah. And this, the language is gone. It is just the archetypal story Mm -hmm. and i having watched several different uh filming of macbeth i saw you in a production of (laughs) macbeth where you play you were mcduff right yes i was so you played mcduff it is among my favorite shakespeare plays agreed throne of blood is probably my favorite version that i've ever seen Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't have the language i hadn't seen a 
since Throne of Blood, I hadn't seen any version that like that I liked until the 2015 Macbeth with Michael Fassbender, mm, which, which I never saw. I didn't oh, see it. Please, it's, it's incredible. Great. They removed all the humor. It's just this dark exploration of the, the story. Once again, the themes, and yeah. this is what he latches on to here: this idea of being, what would you do if you were thrust in the right. situation to possibly be king? Would you go down Macbeth's path? Yeah. Well, and and it does. It doesn't. One of the things I dislike in many versions of Macbeth I've seen is that the people making the play or the movie have already condemned him. Yes. And I like, no, you have to, he has to right. be admirable. You have to be with him on some level. You have to, you have to connect to understand. Him. Yeah. The journey is not Lady Macbeth. The journey is Macbeth. Yeah. You know, Lady Macbeth is a tragic figure in how it ends up with her, but Macbeth has to feel like you. You have to feel, you have to be saying the whole time, no, why are you doing this? Stop, yeah. stop, turn around, please. Yeah. And you have to feel that so that when the turn happens, you're just despondent that he's done this. Yeah. You know? Well, and the, and for Macbeth, this, each step has to make sense. Yes. Well, I've done this. Well, now I'm going to have to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, now I have to do that. I also think the Lady Macbeth of Throne of Blood is oh. one of the most disturbing yeah. and scary and painful and it's because, so he, uh, Kurosawa loved no drama. And this is the thing about him. So we know he loves Dostoevsky and Russian literature. We know he loves impressionistic paintings. We know that he loves music from ar- around the world, uh, like like the uh, Bolero that's in Rashomon, which isn't Ravel's Bolero, but it's similar. Like we, we know that he draws from all these places, but one of the places he draws from is no drama. Which is N-O-H, no drama. Yeah, yeah N-O-H, drama. And the, and aesthetically, so much, because Throne of Blood is really theatrical. Yes. Very, very theatrical and very formal in a way that his other films are not. Mm-hmm. And that he's really pulling on that classic no drama. And but and again, to Shirmafuni. Yes. <laughs> I mean, just... As incredible manic best. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. And his death with the arrows... Is one of the scariest things and, I've ever seen in film. And those are real arrows. Yeah. He tra- those are real trained archers who are shooting at Mufuni. Really close to him. Yes. Dozens of arrows. I don't know how they pulled that off. I don't either. It's, uh, that's I, I kind of got that's, So if we ever, so so we're going to do a commentary track. Yeah. Uh, this is on our survey. Um, and I believe Throne of Blood is one of them that's on the list as a potential. So if we do that film, we will find out. We will know the answer to that question. <laughs> well, I think this also begins the anger that Mufuni starts to feel with Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Yeah. This idea of like, you don't take care of me. You don't take it. You put me in these situations, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I think both men carry the weight for the breakup of that friendship. Um, you know, Mufuni was a, uh, an alcoholic. Mufuni didn't treat his kids that well. Mufuni had his own. He was a playboy. And so you counter that with the very staid uh, Kurosawa, who was of, rith- who was of ritual and uh, rigid yeah. uh, rules. But know. also a serious drinker. Yes, also and, himself a serious drinker. Yes, absolutely. And, and a dictator. Yes. You know. The emperor. You know, so it's like, yeah, and I mean, the wolf. <laughs> honestly, it's surprising they stay together as oh, long as they do. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Lower Depths I've Never Seen, it's based on the, the Gorky play. Yes. Um, and then Hidden Fortress. Yeah. Which is, I haven't watched it in a long time, is totally fun. Yeah. And what's interesting about it to me is it's another samurai film is that he had been pushing against the cuz the old style Japanese samurai mm-hmm. film was like a classic old school western, lots of adventure, lots of honor, lots of like very kind of stiff fun escapist material. Yeah. And with Rashomon and Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood, he's pushing against that in all sorts of ways. 
Hidden Fortress, he goes, let's do it. Yeah. Let's have some fun. Yeah. And it is a lot of fun. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, you would not have Star Wars without Hidden Fortress. Yeah, it is. It is. Please know that. There's a general and a princess and there's two bumbling peasants. Mm-hmm. And they're essentially the droids. And there's wipes. And there's wipes. Course. Well, that's a, that's thing he's that's been doing thing, from yeah. the beginning. He's yeah. done wipes. Yeah. Uh, this is his first widescreen movie, mm-hmm. which I can't. It's kind of stunning to me that we have to get until 1958 mm. before he shoots widescreen. And once he does, he never goes back. Um, and I think I know I've talked about this in a podcast at some point, but with his writing partners, this was the process for Hidden Fortress. He had three writing partners: him and one guy, and then these two other guys. And they would go up in the mountains and they would drink a ton. Yes, and then. Two of them would come up with a trap. So they go, we, these guys have gotten surrounded by bad guys. And then they hand that script to the other guys, and the other guys would come up with how to get out of the trap. Yeah. And then they would trap the characters in the next trap and hand it back. And, ch- and I think, to me, like one of the biggest connections to Star Wars is that's the trash compactor. Do you know what I mean? Oh, good point. You know what I mean? It's like we've, we're going to trap our kids, and then we're going to trap yeah. them again, and then we're going to trap them again. Right. How do you get out? Yeah, I think for point. those of you who want to write action films... This is a great way to do it, yeah. is the trap. And, and it's funny because I was thinking about this. It took on a more profound meaning. So this is on the just like adventure level. But then I thought about everything we've been talking about is the, I'm going to put a character in the situation. You have stomach cancer. Yeah. You have tuberculosis. You have to face, you're afraid of the bomb. Your kids, you think your kid's been kidnapped, but no, it's the chauffeur's kid. Like, okay, what are you going to do? And this idea of... You are what what I think Kurosawa is really interested in is not the why do people do things, but the how. Okay, what do you do? How do you behave? What choices do you now make? And and one of the things he talks about, he he believes that these movies are these organic things. So he creates the situation and then sees what his characters do. Yeah. You know, and in this case, it's really fun. In some of the cases, it gets pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, the bad sleep well. I don't think I've seen it. I saw that one on TCM uh, recently. That one mm. took me three days to watch. Yeah, it's it's slow, but it's an interesting corporate drama about yeah. how one man is manipulating a situation throughout because he's been wronged by the boss. Right. And this whole his father's been killed, and he's yeah, and he's married under false pretenses, and all this. And it's Bufune. He's exacting revenge on yeah. the entire company for what happened to his dad. And so slowly but surely, he manipulates everybody into the situation. And is corrupted himself to some yeah. degree. And Takashi Shimura is in this as well. Yes. <laughs> These guys. <laughs> Yojimbo. Ah, yeah. So... You can hear our podcast on Yojimbo. Fair. Um, we've talked about it a big thing, but the thing that occurred to me is like, this is 1961. It's to Mifune again. I believe Akira Kurosawa's scripts and films have been adapted by more other filmmakers than any other director. Wow. So, and of course, we've talked about two, uh, uh, Magnificent Seven, which uh, which is based on Seven Samurai, yeah. and Yojimbo, which becomes uh, Fistful of Dollars. Mm-hmm. It becomes... Um, Last Man Standing, it yeah. becomes... Um, the Bruce Willis one. There's one that's the warrior and the sorceress. I don't know what the hell Oh, yeah, is. okay. Um, and you look at Seven Samurai, which is A Bug's Life. Yes. It's Battle Beyond the Planet, Battle Beyond the Stars, you know. And the remake. Um, Omega Doom is Yojimbo. Um, you know, and I have to say, like another Seven Samurai, it's not really the same. Episode four of The Mandalorian. Yeah. That is, a, there's, that is the Seven Samurai. I mean, it's only yeah. two warriors, but... 
we have a small town getting mm-hmm. attacked by bandits and we go get the hired help to come in and they teach us how to defend our town against the bandits. Man, that's Seven Samurai. Yeah. And also there's an anime called Samurai, Samurai 7 that is the Seven Samurai in the future uh, uh, that they did. You guys have to see that. My friend Colleen Clinkenbeard is the voice of the main actress. It's an incredible adaptation of Seven Samurai set in the future. Well, what's what's so weird about it, though, with all of these is that you can take the structure of the Kurosawa, or even me writing my own screenplay on Sanjuro yeah. Sagata, is you could take the structure. But what Magnificent Seven, a movie that I love, doesn't have is the depth. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Is that there's there's that that asking those deeper, more complicated, more human questions that Kurosawa does that mostly gets stripped away. Yep. Even the young uh, kid who you know ends up staying in the town... Um, it doesn't carry the same weight as when the kid does it in Seven Samurai. They're, they're, well, yeah, they're really different. It's 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 the difference between a two-hour movie and a three-hour movie. Yeah. And it's the difference between Kurosawa and, is it Sturgis who directed Sturgis, yeah. yeah. Uh, Sanjuro is 62. That's the sequel to mm-hmm. Yojimbo. Just fun. Totally fun. High and low. We've already talked about it. Oh, man. But Mifune plays a industrialist about to make a big, huge deal. Mm-hmm. Thinks his kid gets kidnapped, and by, by the way, it's a huge deal that will save the company. It will save the company. He's about to get taken over by his corporate, by his corrupt partners. He believes that his kid has gotten kidnapped and is ready to pay a huge ransom, yeah. and then finds out it wasn't his kid. His kid's fine. It was the chauffeur's kid. Mm-hmm. And what do you do? Right. You know, because if he if he pays this ransom money, he won't have the money to do the takeover to right. save his company. Yep. Uh, um, and it's a whole. It's fantastic how many moving pieces. Yeah. There are. And and like Ikaru, it, it it actually is kind of in two parts because mm. the kid comes back yes. halfway through. And now we're off, you know, it's the high and low. And and right. Mifune's world, the world of the wealthy, is the high. Right. And now we're gonna go off into the world of the low. And Mifune comes for the character comes from the low. Yeah. So him finding his way back to the low yeah. to discover who it is and with those detectives, when he has that confrontation with him at the end with the person who took the kid. It is a fantastic confrontation, and I, I think that spurs um, uh, Springsteen's song in Nebraska, mm. Mansion on the Hill. Oh. I, this idea of looking from the town at this rich house and thinking that symbolizes success when, in fact, it's just as bad as down here. Well, and, and it's interesting, you know, the, the again, the questions Kurosawa is asking, it's easy to be moral when you got a lot of money. Yeah, of course. You know? But when your own stuff is really at risk, mm-hmm. well, that's when the test is. Right. You know, just paying a bunch of money that doesn't cost you that much, you know. It's always amazing when people find morals and principles when their lives or their, I mean, uh, when their jobs or their money is threatened. It's yeah. always interesting. Yeah. Uh, and this one has someone we, we should have mentioned before who's in Yojimbo is Tatsuo Nakadai. Yeah. And he is starting to show up in these other films. He's one of the detectives in High and Low. Um, yeah. He takes over for Mufuni down the road. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the end of Mufuni because our next film, which I have never seen, is Redbeard. Redbeard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that he plays, it's like 19th century, he plays a doctor, mm-hmm. and I don't know that much about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting film. I mean, certainly uh, you can tell they were fraying at the edges with yeah. some of the performances and some of the scenes that are in the film. It almost become because it's an old doctor teaching a young doctor about blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like Mifune passing on the torch to the young actor to take over for him as he's yeah. moving off. Yeah. And we have now moved out of the golden age. Yeah. You know, and from 65 to 70, he doesn't make a film. 
Mm-hmm. He writes a script for Runaway Train, which gets made years and years and years later. One of my favorite 80s films, yeah. by the way. Um, and uh, he goes off. He's going to shoot it in uh, New York. Yeah. And he goes to shoot it. It's going to be his first color film. And then it all falls apart. Falls apart. And then he gets hired to do the Japanese sides of Tora, Tora, Tora for yeah. Fox. Yeah. And there are a lot of different stories about what happened. But he either started, got pissed off of the way the studio was treating him. He self-sabotaged. Mm-hmm. He started just going way over budget to get, he either tried to get himself fired or they didn't like him. He says they didn't like him and they fired him and you know crushed his artistic mm-hmm. things. They say he went nuts and they hired doctors to prove that he was insane because <laughs> he had wasted. So, but the end of it is that he gets fired from all of this. And after this is five years where he's trying to make films and Nobody's giving him money anymore. Yeah. He can't get money to make the films that he wants to make. He makes uh, Dodeskaden. Yeah, Dodeskaden. Dodeskaden, yeah. yeah. which I haven't seen. Yeah, I did. It's an interesting film. I've heard this is one of his lesser yeah, films. Yeah, it's a tough watch. You get the intention. You get what he was trying to do. And it's a sweetheart of a, of a protagonist, but it's a tough film to watch. And it's a low budget. Mm-hmm. And then, on, that was 1970, and on December 22nd, 1971, he attempts suicide. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we do have to frame this that as a, a Japanese man, as a Japanese artist, there yeah. is a long tradition of Japanese artists at a certain point when they feel they've passed their artistic peak of ending their lives. So does that mean that we don't put it on the same that we treat an attempted suicide by Akira Kurosawa differently from, you know, I don't know. But, but yeah, this is a moment in his life that is. He couldn't get money. He couldn't do the films he wanted to do. He's older. You know, the demons are harder to fight as you get older, I think, if you haven't done the work, you know. And maybe all that stuff that with his brother, all that stuff now comes to haunt him because success is a great distractor. Yeah. Maybe this is why he drank so much, too, is to. Sure escape those thoughts and finally when there's a lot of downtime and you're not successful those thoughts come creeping in absolutely true mm-hmm. but he survives the attempt yeah yes and it seems of his, his personality really changed yeah. after that it's almost all the way back to Shenshuro Sungara he had to go into that damn yeah. pool himself and stay in the lotus pond himself and then finally as close as possible to dying finally he learns to appreciate life again and it comes through in his yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. It's a last hurrah. I mean, but still can't get money. Nope. No one's, and it's just, it's so tragic that here's this great filmmaker. Yeah. Nobody's giving money. And so he goes to the Soviet Union and they totally fund his next film, yeah. which is Dersu Uzula. Which is a great film. Again, I haven't seen it. Really? Oh. Yeah, I should watch. It's That's what so I said. Fantastic. Reading through this, I was like, oh man, <laughs> there are a lot of films that I have not seen. It's such an unusual film, Dersu Uzula, but it really, and it's a sweet film about a friendship between this guy and uh, Dersu and what they try to create there. It's just a fantastic film. Beautiful film. And I think it's like him, like... Uh, loving humanity again, like embracing humanity again, almost like a hero yeah, right at the end. Say. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Wells becoming what he shot, you know, with Charles Foster Kane. That's that's kind of fascinating. Mm. Still can't raise money. Mm. Goes to America. George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola help him out with Fox, surprisingly yeah. enough, and the next film is Kagamusha. Oh. And I go like, man, if people thought he was done... You know, that he'd, he'd gone through some, you know, fallow years. Mm-hmm. Kagamusha's a great movie. Yeah. It's a really good movie. It's beautiful in color, too. Yeah. 
Like, you know, you the samurai things re- are really vibrant. And he pushes characters. the color. Yeah. And into a level of abstraction sometimes mm-hmm. that's really gorgeous. And this is a story about a criminal who looks just like the Lord. Right. You know, kind of a classic. This is Dave. Yeah. It's t- this is totally Dave. Yeah. That is exactly what it is. Cause then the Lord dies. And yeah. then like, what are you going to do? Um, and, and yet it's also at this moment of like the key moment in Japanese history before Tokugawa became the Shogun and all these lo- warlords are fighting each other. And this, you know, mm-hmm. criminal is right in the middle of all that yeah. and what his does. And, and again, it's, it, it, you know, we put this character in this situation. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, it's a really, it's a really good movie. Yeah. And then the movie that just blew my mind is 1985 and Ron. Ron was the one, man. Holy crap. I remember seeing, I think, honestly, Steve, I think this may be the first Kurosawa film I ever saw. Wow. Because I think it was showing in D.C. at the Uptown. So you saw your first Kurosawa film maybe in the theater. Maybe in the I know I saw the first time I saw Ron was in the theater. Wow. It might have been a reissue, whatever they call it, whatever they call it, they bring it back, but a re-release. Yeah. But I know that I saw it in the theater. I know I saw it in D.C. And I know it was right when I was beginning to love film. And I drove into town to watch it from Virginia. And I remember just shaking after the film was over because I'd never seen anything like it, you know? I don't think there is anything like it. I, here can I, I, I would say it's... Mm, how can I say this correctly? I don't want to say this in, in the wrong way, but, like, it's essentially... If, you, if your first sexual experience was the most amazing sexual experience you've ever had, you just walk out and you're a different person. And I walked out from this a completely different person in terms of understanding the beauty of film and Shakespeare... You know, because I was this is King Lear. That. Yeah, this is King, King Lear. Lear. And and I, it's so funny. Like I think Seven Samurai is a better film. Sure. And if you said, "What are you going to watch? You're going to watch Samurai, Seven Samurai or Ron?" I'd like, well, I'd rather watch Seven Samurai. But I think the wallop, the visual power of Ron, is unlike any other film I could think of. And the battle, see that final battle sequence. Mm-hmm. With the two different armies and, and the old guy and them coming out and the flaming arrows and the blood and the color and the way there's an unbelievable sequence where you're entirely in music. There's yes. no realistic no. sound at all. Yeah. It's just score. And then there's a single gunshot and then you go all sound, no music. Yeah. And it is so it's funny. I had it on Laserdisc, and this was one of the Laserdiscs, like mm. when I would show people, like, <laughs> look at this. Yeah. Because it was so powerful the what reds goes are, on in that film the reds are so vibrant in that movie the red colors are so vibrant i and this is what's incredible steve we just talked about him surviving this is the most confident film that he's ever directed this is him at the height of his powers as an older director understanding what works and what doesn't work and having the confidence and the guts to put all that whole scene of just music that whole scene of no of just sound like it's guts that the audience is going to go with you, that you earn these totally. moments. It's a confident film, man. Two, two things about it. One is, it is, again, it follows this kind of theme we've been talking about the whole time, which is that there's the great man, yeah, and he has a conception of the world, 
and he believes in that conception of the world and I'm going to split up my kingdom in this way and believes he knows what's going to happen yeah. and then has to face the fact that the world is not at all what he thought it was yeah. and that in fact be, as the Lord he had been protected from what is the reality and then he comes face to face with the chaos and violence and sadness and hopelessness and just plain madness yeah. of the world mm-hmm. you know it is as a as an old man film yeah it is as profound as you could imagine one other thing about it cuz this is just a classic kurosawa story is someone asked him you know there's a scene where the the samurai mounted on horseback come over the hill mm. and it is like Mm-hmm. It's one of the most perfect scenes, and it's you know huge epic battle kind yeah. of scene. It's like Lord and of the Rings when they come over. Totally, and someone says to him, you know, Mister Kurosawa, uh, how did you choose to f- put the camera exactly there when that happened? And he said, Well, there was a Toyota factory over there, and the power lines over there, <laughs> so that was the only place to shoot it. And that is both awesome and a com- complete BS. Yeah, yeah, because. Yes, that might have been true, <laughs> but the lens you chose at exactly where you put the camera and the angle, the timing and the blocking of all, how you choreographed all these horses and how you rehearsed it, that's right. all you, you know, <laughs> but I still like the story. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. And now we get into what I will say are the lesser films. Yeah. The last of which I've never seen, but mm-hmm. Dreams I've seen. Yeah, Dreams is good. And Dreams is like, you know, it's little, it's his dreams. It's uneven, but it's still good. Visually, you're, it's some of them are really, really cool and really interesting. Scorsese's and, in it. Scorsese. He that plays Van Gogh. He plays Van Gogh. Yeah. I find that scene weird. It is very weird. I mean, it's cool visually. Yeah. And I'm sure Scorsese said, you want me to do what now? <laughs> and also, Kurosawa son, whatever you want me yeah, to do, of course. I will do. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then Rhapsody in August, mm-hmm. which I like. I remember I saw that in New York when I was by myself oh. and saw it like at Lincoln Center or something. Wow. And there are moments in it where you go, where, where the grandmother is running in the wane yeah. and the umbrella pulls back and you're like, that's Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. But it's also weird because it's color and modern and Richard Gere is in it. Yeah, Richard Gere is really, weird to be in it. It's yeah. really weird to have him in it. Yeah. It's interesting. And the, and the last one, which is Maradayo, Maradayo, I've never seen. Have you seen it? Oh, no. I haven't seen that one yet. It looks really interesting. Yes. It's like a chemical medicine factory, and it's mm-hmm. all about the Japanese conformity within the factory. And you know, it's, it looks really interesting, but I've not seen it. I feel, from what I've read about the film, I feel this is his message, his final message to Japan yeah. for the future going forward. Passing it on. Um, so, uh, and there's one other thing I wanted to mention, which I, I've always remembered his um, Oscar. He got the Lifetime Achievement Award mm-hmm. from the Oscars in 1990. And I've always remembered his speech. And I, I want to read it to you because I just oh, yeah. found this to be so profound. He said, in Japanese, obviously, mm-hmm. he said, I'm very deeply honored to receive such a wonderful prize, but I have to ask whether I really deserve it. Of course, everyone laughed. He says, I'm a little worried because I don't feel that I understand cinema yet. I really don't feel that I have yet grasped the essence of cinema. Cinema is a marvelous thing, but to grasp its true essence is very, very difficult. But what I promise you is that from now on, I will work as hard as I can at making movies. And maybe by following this path, I will achieve an understanding of the true essence of cinema and therefore earn this reward. Ever the student. That's what I love about it. Ever humbled by the medium. Well, and and it's like, of course this is a speech. Yeah, and yeah, of yeah. course he's p- putting out a certain image. Yeah. But it also is the thing that you talk about in martial arts, you talk about a lot of different disciplines, is beginner mind. Yeah. Is that no matter how long you've done it, you should still approach it to some degree 
I have more to learn. Yeah. And I love that that this guy, at the end of his career, one of the most revered people in the history of film, receiving an award from the most august body, theoretically, of lifetime achievement, says, I need to keep learning. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John... Do you have final sh- thoughts on Mr. Akira Kurosawa? Wow. Uh, does, wh- how does he pass? Do we say how he passed? I don't know. <laughs> we should probably say how he passed. All right. Let's find it. Hold on. <laughs> or what year? <laughs> Look, I had a lot of stuff. I'm sure you do. Yes, of mm-hmm. course. We filled an hour um, and a half. I love it. <laughs> uh, let's see. So Madadayo is uh, 1993, and he dies in 1998 yeah. at the age of 88. Of a stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was in Tokyo too, surrounded yeah. by his family. So yeah. Um, so John, yeah, we've gone on a long journey through the life of one of the greatest filmmakers in history. Mm-hmm. Do you have final thoughts on the work of Mr. Akira Kurosawa? This is something of an episode of something of a cinephile about something of a Kurosawa. I <laughs> <laughs> here's what I will tell you. Um, you know, as you as I become older, as a, a fan and lover of film. Um, I become more precious about the directors and the uh, f- filmmakers and the creators that and the artists that have influenced my love of film. And Orson Welles used to be my favorite director. I said that from my 20s on that Orson Welles was my favorite director. But over the last 10 to 15 years as I've gotten older and kind of like changed who I am as a person and, and just settled down and matured a little more. I find myself more moved and in love with Kurosawa's films and Kurosawa himself um, than I ever was before. And I find more messages of hope and more uh, concepts to consider and think about. I find myself challenged more by his films than I uh, ever was with Wells's films. And so he's become now my favorite filmmaker, bar none. He's the one filmmaker I tried to turn anybody onto when they come to me who's a youngster and says like, hey, you know, you, you you know so much about films. Where should I start? Kurosawa is invariably the first director that I mentioned that you should start at because he is one of these people that embraced the power of the medium from small to large to medium projects. He always found a way to flourish within whatever construct he was given and to paint on the canvas his um vision so well and so thoroughly and so completely uh and moved all of us universally regardless of country to fall in love with the characters to feel for the characters to go on their journey and to be changed afterwards uh from his films um so i think no one leaves a greater legacy and the story is incredible Look, Sinatra tried to kill himself too and then bounced back from that to create some of the most incredible work ever. So sometimes you see this in great artists. They are driven to create these master works. And when they can't do it anymore, there's a despondency that creeps in. But when they bounce back, they bounce back even more confident and more driven to leave a legacy of their work. And Kurosawa can be taken in stages and enjoyed thoroughly for those times. And I think that speaks to a master artist and someone that I think we'll be talking about till the world ends as one of the top filmmakers ever. That's great. And I, I, I've been struggling as you've been talking, mm. trying to think of how do I sum up my feelings <laughs> about this guy? And, and what I think is, I think he he might be the the deepest 
uh, filmmaker. And not, I don't mean deep in that it's the most pro- saying the most profound things, although right. it definitely says profound things. I mean that you can keep going back to him in a way, and it's like, like you know, Kubrick is an amazing filmmaker, and there's always something, even with his very emotional films, that's strangely clinical hmm. about Kubrick. You know, and it's weird to say that a movie like Clockwork Orange or The Shining or something like that would be clinical. And yet there's something because he's so rigid in his the way he creates things yeah. and is so meticulous. You know, um, Spielberg has made great adventure films and great dramatic films, but there's very little drama in his adventures. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's not you don't go. I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not deep. There's nothing in there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, other than it's great at mm-hmm. what it is, whereas Seven Samurai is great adventure but there's a lot in there yeah you know wells in his moments of genius maybe has the highest level of genius of any filmmaker but he's so uneven you know and there's so much where his hubris and his situation and all that stuff whereas you know hitchcock is the great craftsman and the great understanding of what he would call pure cinema and that all that stuff Mm -hmm. but there's not depth and complexity in Hitchcock the way there is, whereas Kurosawa will point his camera at these moments in life that, and make you look at things like he had to look to at the earthquake and yet be drawn into them and then see them again and see them again and they're deeper and more complicated. And there is something unknowable about Kurosawa. Yeah. When you get to the end of Psycho, you know it, you get on, you know what it was about. You get to the end even of uh, uh, Schindler's List and you go like, I understand what that movie was about. Mm-hmm. You get to the end of Rashomon or Ikiru, you don't. Yeah. You go like, oh, what is – and then you take it with you out in your world. I guess – I mean it's funny. Maybe it's that unknowable quality that's making me struggle so much to to sum him up. You know. Um, and, and, and one more thing that – I don't, I don't feel – I just want to add this because I don't feel like we said it enough. Mm-hmm. The visuals of Kurosawa's film, where he puts the camera, how he moves the camera, the use of weather, the use of lighting, the movement, all of that stuff is just there shot after shot after shot that you cannot believe how gorgeous and how yeah. profound it is. And the music, too. Oh, great music. It's, it's so iconic with all these movies. Yeah. yeah. And it draws from all the different Europe and from Japan and from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess that is what we think about Akira Kurosawa. We have so much more to do. I feel like in this month we're going to go next to at least a two parts yeah, <laughs> episode we'll see. on Seven Samurai. There's so much to talk about there. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to be doing a commentary track. If you want to vote for what commentary track we should do, you can go uh, go to visit our Facebook page or any of our Twitter or Instagram pages and you can see the survey we have up there. Of course, we want to hear what you think about Akira Kurosawa. In particular, what's your favorite Kurosawa film and why? Mm. Visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher. Leave us a review. We really, really need them. They help people continue to find the show. We really want to grow our audience. You can buy. We're going to put up, just like we did for Hitchcock, I'm going to put up a whole page devoted to Kurosawa with a whole bunch of Criterion collections and stuff you can check out. Also, movies you can stream. Go to cinephiles.net. 
And as always, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, where can they reach you? Yeah, you can reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And Steve, if you don't mind, I have to have an, a bit of an unconventional send off as that is. So as most of you know, um, I was released from Collider. I was let go from Collider uh, along with Mark Riley and a couple other people. Uh, recently, so we've had to come out, go out on our own, and I and I responded by uh, rededicating myself to the to my YouTube channel. So, if you would like to come be a subscriber, and to, to all of you that have come to subscribe from 153 subscribers to almost 8,000 subscribers at the time of this recording, it's been such a humbling experience. If you haven't subscribed yet, I'd love for you to do so. It's www.youtube.com backslash John Roca says. Uh, that's John Roca says. Uh, they wouldn't give me the Roca says, so go with that. How route. dare they? How dare they, yes. And come subscribe. I've got so many plans for reviews, for uh, interviews, for uh, content on the show, and to uh, I mean on the channel, and to expand the channel, to have multiple shows on the channel, and multiple playlists for you to enjoy so much work. So I'd love it if you did that. And of course, I have my own Patreon now that I've started as well as part of the Outlaw Nation. It's www.patreon.com slash John Roca again my name there so please come and be a part of it I promise you I will give you much bang for your buck and since we're subscribing to things we should mention that if you are on Instagram you can also subscribe mm. to our own podcast uh, identity which is the Cinephiles podcast and if you are on Twitter check out at Cine underscore underscore files that's Cine C-I-N-E underscore F-I-L-E-S and I think that is it for this week we will see you next week for Seven Samurai on the Cinephiles Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.